Our invitation song be number 911 if you'd mark that. Number 911, bring Christ your broken life. If you mark that page, turn number 867. 867. Let's stand together as we sing. This is an old song, and I'm an old song leader, so let's sing out. To Canaan's land I'm on my way Where the soul never dies My darkest night will turn to day Where the soul never dies No sad farewells No tear dimmed eyes Where never dies and I will spend eternity where the soul never dies no sad farewells no tear dimmed eyes where all is love and the soul soul never dies where there will be no parting hand and the soul never dies no sad farewells no tear dimmed eyes where Um, I want you to know I have some outlines of this. I'm not going to give them to you till after because there's several passages I won't be able to go over. And uh, and uh, if you if you'd like a, a copy of this outline for further study, uh, you can get it uh, at uh, after our services are over. Um, the topic for discussion tonight is life after death, the resurrection of the of the human body, and uh, what happens when we die. Well, when I made that statement this morning, uh, a little Alden over here, Jamie's son, when I said, well, I'm going to preach about what happens after you die, he looked up at his mama and said, I know what happens after you die. You go straight to heaven. You stay there forever. So that's the end of my sermon. If he knows it and he understands it, then, then we've got it made. It is interesting out of the mouth of babes, isn't it? What a confidence that a child can have and how important it is sometimes the things that we teach our children, what they understand. 
Other people have told me that they know what happens after you die, that one of those Thomas boys pulls up and carries you away. And so, uh, but you know, uh, all of us are going to die if we live long enough. Isn't that right? Or the Lord doesn't come. For every person that's born, if, if the Lord doesn't come, they're going to die. And, 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 and so, in a sense, we're all on a journey. And it's not just to a graveyard, as some people would have us to think. It's a journey to the, to the throne of God. And so it's very important for us to be able to study some of those things and see what they have to say. You know, Paul was in his defense before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And Paul was before a a Jewish audience. And as Paul was defending why he was a Christian, why he had left Judaism, he began to talk about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. And then he looked at them and he made this observation in a question. Why is it judged incredible with you if God raises the dead. Now he was, he was feeding that to Agrippa because Agrippa was a Jew, probably a Pharisee. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees did not. And so he was directing that to Agrippa so that Agrippa would understand that part of the reason why he was on trial was because he believed in the resurrection and Agrippa believed that too. But you know, there's, there, there have always been people who have denied that there is a resurrection from the dead. And I suggest if you do a little reading, you'll find out that there are both Christian and non-Christian people who say that there is no resurrection from the dead. There are, therefore, there are denials, and I'll go through those. The ancient Greeks disdained the notion that the body could ever be raised. Thus, when Paul was on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, and he spoke about the resurrection from the dead and the one who would judge the world and how God proved that he would judge the world by resurrecting Jesus, it said some of them mocked him. They mocked him. They thought it was ridiculous. I have a book in my library, The History of Atheism by Thrower, and it traces atheism back to 600 years before Christ or earlier. You know, it's, it has not been the case that people have always believed in God and always believed in the resurrection. And when Paul preached, the prevailing philosophical view of his day that was that there was no resurrection from the dead. When Jesus preached, as I mentioned, there were both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 22, you find that Jesus answers one of the most difficult questions that were being asked by the Sadducees. Who knows how long they were asking this question? Because of the Leverite marriage law, if, if a man died, his brother would marry his wife and have children with her and would raise up those children after his brother's name. So they told this story about a, a man who had um, a, a woman who was married to all seven brothers and then she died. And so their response was to the Pharisees, if there's a resurrection, whose wife will she be in the judgment? And evidently nobody could answer that. There wasn't a single Pharisee in all of Israel that could answer that. And when you turn to Matthew chapter 22, you see how quickly Jesus answered that. The Sadducees denied there was a resurrection. And that's why in Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through 8, when Paul was defending his Christianity, he split the Jewish opposition when he said that he was in prison because he believed in the resurrection from the dead, which was true. Now, there were even some Christians in the early church that had fallen into this era. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, it says that they said there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul calls that a heresy, which is a a, a crime against the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll be looking at that passage in just a moment, if you'd like to turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. 
And in the later days of the apostolic age, there was a group of Greek-influenced people as the Gnostics. And they were materialist, and they denied. And they became very powerful. And, and, and from what I understand, at one time, the Gnostics outnumbered Christians. And they did not believe in the resurrection. Well, the most important thing for, for me tonight to show you what the Bible teaches about the resurrection. And I'm not talking about Jesus' resurrection. I'll be talking about both. But the resurrection of our bodies after we die. First of all, the concept is found in the Old Testament. Though it's not as pronounced and not brought to light as it is in the New Testament, according to Jesus, in Matthew 22, when Jesus was instructing the Sadducees, he said, you remember when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus added this, God is not, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. So what was the argument? The argument was this, because of the, the tense of the verb that God used when he spoke to Moses at the burning bush, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that had been, had been dead for 600 years, um, you see, they were, they, were, they were still alive. And so what he was saying, and that's the one biblical argument that he used against the Sadducees. There are other Old Testament passages that, that you can read that allude to that in Job. And I have these on the list in Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, and Hosea. So the concept of the resurrection is found in the Old Testament. The, the doctrine of the body resurrection is also affirmed in the New Testament. And again, I have a listing of, of, all, of all kinds of scriptures. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. If you don't have that pa passage marked in your Bible, you need to mark that passage about the resurrection. Because that, that passage tells you that at the resurrection, both the wicked and the good will be resurrected at the same time. And there are those who come later when, in, 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 in Thessalonians when Paul is only talking about what's going to happen with the righteous. And they try to say that there's two resurrections that span a difference of time when there's only one resurrection. Jesus makes it plain in John chapter 5 verse 28 and 29 about that resurrection. But the resurrection is spoken of throughout the New Testament. And I have those passages on this if you'd like to study them. Now turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15 because here's an entire chapter that talks about the bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection. Notice, Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel, which you received and which you stand, by which you are, are saved, if you hold fast, unless you have believed in vain. And notice... It's important, if you don't understand the resurrection, you don't believe in it. If you're a Christian, you believed in vain. For I delivered of you of the first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so Paul then begins to give an extended argument for the resurrection. It's pretty interesting in the, in the Harper Study Bible that I have, it, 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 he, he, his argument is the necessity of the resurrection, verses uh, 12 through 19, the assurance of the resurrection, verse 20, through you know, the outline. You can just outline every argument that he's making. So for the first 11 verses, Paul says that it's a historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that he appeared to over 500 people at one time, many of them which were still alive when Paul was writing the book of 1 Corinthians. What does that tell you? Some people knew and saw 
that Christ was resurrected from the dead. And if Christ was raised from the dead, then there is a resurrection. Notice in verses 12 through 34, he maintains that the Lord's resurrection was just heaven's guarantee that we too will be resurrected. That Jesus was just the first fruits. And so it becomes significant that Christ's resurrection is saying, like Alden said, I don't have to worry about when I die because I'm going to go be with the Lord. I'm going to live there forever and ever. And that is exactly one of the arguments that Paul makes. Then notice, if you will, verses 35 through 49, Paul talks about the the nature of the resurrection. Notice, um, he he tells you exactly about the fact that there are different kinds of flesh. There's different kinds of bodies. So the body that you will be resurrected in will be different from the body that you have. It's going to be a different kind of body. Somebody says, well, how do you know that? Because Jesus resurrected body. Did they know who Jesus was? Yes. Did Jesus talk to them? Yes. Jesus even ate with them. Okay. But, but then his body was different. Why? Because he he never died again. He ascended in that bodily form to be with God. His body was different in that he could become what immaterial or what he could walk right through a wall if he wanted to, but it was a body. And it is interesting in 1 John chapter 1, when John begins talking about Jesus, he talks about what they see, what they saw, what they heard, and what they felt. And that's what he's talking about. That they knew that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And so, there, there, there will be an identity continuum between our present body and the new body. And, and, and this is what the word resurrection means. It means to stand up. And, 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 if, and, and if the resurrection is nothing like who you are right now, then what would standing up do? They wouldn't know who was standing up. It only makes sense that way. And then finally, the theological impact of the resurrection is incredible. Notice what he says in verse 51. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we who are alive shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. And then when that takes place, there will be this tremendous saying that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's thy victory? Oh, death, where's thy sting? And then when he ends that argument, verse 58, notice what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that all your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's not a single thing that you can do for the Lord that anybody can take away from you. Because one of these days you'll be in his presence forever and ever. Listen, y'all, I've been preaching over 41 years. I've crossed over the midsection. I'm not going to be here that much longer. And, and it's interesting now I can comfort people because I remind them, man, it's not going to be long till all of us who are in my generation, we're going to be there. How many years is it? Uh, it's so interesting when I talk about when people are retired, man, I just remember when I was a boy growing up in the Detroit area, you retired from Ford or General Motors or Chrysler at 65, you didn't have to worry about spending that retirement money because in my recollection, you died the next year. And I equated retirement with death. And now we've got people in the church been retired 15 years. Things have changed. But they haven't changed all that much. It won't be long. There won't be any doubt about it. You'll have been there and you'll see that. 
Notice, death is not the termination of human existence. You know, suicide is, is, is in epidemic proportions in America. And somebody says, why? I'll tell you why. Because people stop believing in God. They stop believing in the resurrection. And I'll be honest with you. Listen, if I didn't know that God existed, and if I didn't know the Bible was the word of God and Jesus Christ was the son of God, I wouldn't be here tonight, would you? The only reason I'm here is because I know that. And there's been times in my life just like yours that I wished I could have died. But, I, but you know, there's nothing I can do about it. But I'll tell you guys, if you wish you could die, don't let your wife know you're sick. They'll do anything they can to keep you alive. But you know, death is not the termination of human existence. It's one of the reasons why we need to raise our kids in the church and they need to understand no matter how terrible and how hard this life is. And man, I've seen people and I know people right now that are suffering terribly, but there is no exit until the Lord decides that he will exit you. Now, you don't have to keep yourself on a feeding tube. You don't have to keep, you know, things running through your blood and oxygen in your nose. When you know you can't live, you can stop all that. But you can't positively take your life. And you don't want to. Why? Because when you leave this earth, you're going to wake up immediately in the afterlife. Death only marks our earthly existence, not our personal existence. James said it like this. How simple is it? He said, it's like faith without works is dead is just like the body without the spirit. He didn't say the spirit was dead. When the spirit leaves, the body's dead. Try to get some materialist to explain to you what death is. I mean, there's the body. It's right there. Everything that was in that body is in that body. Every material thing that you can find is still right there where that body is. But he's dead. What's gone? It's not that there's some mineral that's gone. You know what I mean? It's not that there's some, some a nerve thing that, that, you know, there's, it's all right there. What's gone? I'll tell you what's gone. The part of you that will live on forever. Your soul. It's gone. Your body's dead. But your soul will still be alive. Scriptural information indicates that the death of, of the, uh, in, in death, the soul of the man, enters what we know as a Hadean realm. Hades is a place of the dead. Gehenna is hell. One of the weaknesses of the King James Version is the old King James Version is they translated them both by hell and they are not. Hell is a place of punishment, but Hades is just a place of the dead. Some people are rewarded there. Some people are punished. And so in Revelation 1 and verse 18, Revelation 20, verse 13 and verse 14, you find that, that, that at the point of death, the spirit of a person merely leaves the body and, and goes to that area. We'll look, we'll look in just a moment at, at, uh, at Luke, um, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man, and reveals that both of these people, Jesus told us this so that we would know, both the good and the evil will die, and they both will live on immediately after they leave this life. You know, Jesus was hanging on the cross. There were two thieves there. At first, they both began to rail on him. And then one of them told him to the other one, leave him alone. We're, we're guilty of the crime. We're dying for our crime. We deserve to die. But he doesn't deserve to die. And then the man looked at Jesus and asked him, would you remember me when you come in your kingdom? He knew something about Jesus. He knew something about the kingdom. And in Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus told this man, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, where was that? 
And what was he talking about? Their bodies weren't buried in the same tomb. Where were they? Where did they go? They lived. All of them lived. But you see, the man who was dying and would not repent, he was going to go in Hades, but he would not be with Jesus. Every biblical passage in the New Testament or the Old Testament that talks about judgment argues the fact that we will continue on after we die and after our body is dead. Dead is not a state of non-conscious existence. While the Bible often speaks of the body as sleeping, that term is only used of the body. The scripture knows nothing of soul sleeping. The part, the part of man that sleeps in death is, is that that's deposited in the dust of the ground. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. This involves only the body, not the soul. Again, both the rich man and Lazarus were both conscious after their deaths. In Luke chapter 16. Notice in, in, in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. He allows us to see the souls of those who had been martyred for the kingdom of God. Where were they? They were alive. Could they talk? Yes. They were crying out, how long, how long, how long before God would punish the Roman Empire for killing the Christians and deliver them? They were conscious. They knew how they died. They knew where they were. They knew, in some sense, what was still going on. Death ends the continuity of human family relations, though. You know, our, our Mormon friends subscribe to the doctrine of celestial marriage. This is the notion that marriage is not for time, but it's for eternity. And boy, when you study Mormonism, it really gets out there. You're going to be a God. You're going to have your own universe. You're going to populate it. That's not Christianity. And so that's what they believe. But you see, that's not at all what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 29 and 30, when he spoke to the Sadducees, you know, he said two things. You do greatly err. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he said, you know, because God told, um, told uh, Moses at the burning bush, I am the, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were not dead. And then he says, you don't know the power of God. Because in the resurrection... There will not be people who are married or given a marriage, but we will be more like the angels. And that's pretty interesting. And so one of the things that's not going to continue in eternity is our family relationships. Don't mean that we won't know each other, but it means we will have, there will be no system to where, you know, Shirley's going to be under me and my, my children are going to be under me. We will know that, but that relationship will end. We will all be on an equal relationship. We will be like the angels are. Number four, there is recognition after death. The Bible teaches that. You know, people always ask, will we know people? Will we know each other? Will we remember what we've done? Think about it. Why are we here? If we can't know what took place to get us into eternity, we would wake up one day in eternity and not know any idea about why we were there. Let me tell you something. You will remember everything from this life. Yes, if you think hard enough, you'll remember this night. Throughout eternity. That's scary, isn't it? Yeah, you remember Jim's long and dull sermon on what happens to you after you die. You will remember things from this life. And therefore, you will know why you are where you are in eternity. And it is, it is so significant for us to understand that. You know, the, the Bible presents solid evidence that people would recognize. The Old Testament patriarchs fully expected to be re reunited with their loved ones in Genesis chapter 25, Genesis 37, and 2 Samuel 12, verse 23. Now, these were men and women of God. They understood that they would be with those who had gone on before. 
And, and in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, Jesus promised us that we would fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, how can we fellowship with people we don't even recognize? In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus was transfigured before uh, Peter, James, and John. And all of a sudden, he began to glow like light. And, and, and they saw him in his glory. And all of a sudden, there appeared unto him Moses and Elijah speaking with him. Now, it's interesting. Peter, James, and John were alive on this earth. But from what they heard, they knew and recognized that that was Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. They understood what they were saying. And it's interesting because there's one of the passages that tells us a little about, about what they were talking about. Well, how is that possible if there is no rec recognition? And then finally, death is not the final and permanent state of the body. The, Sa the Sadducees denied the ultimate re resurrection. Jesus said that we would be similar to the angels. And, and, and the Bible affirms that our resurrection from the, from the dead will be on the last day in John chapter 11, verse 24. And that will be analogous to Christ's bodily resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. And then Paul even said that if you deny the resurrection of, of, and the bodily resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you've denied one, you've denied the other. You know, it's, it's amazing to me how many false ideas there, that are still taught regarding death. Well, here's, here's a good question. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 16. Will, will we be conscious? You know, Brother Woody and Arna were the only two, the two, the only people that I know that uh, lived seventy years in marriage relationship. Seventy years, and when Miss Arna died, they didn't have any children. Woody thought he would die the next week. Those of you who knew Brother Woody, every time I went to visit Brother Woody, I'd have to, I'd have to explain to him about what happens after you die because he thought he's going to die the next week. And he wanted to be with Arna. And I have to, I must have gone over Luke chapter 16 15 times with Brother Woody before I finally died. Trying to explain to him about what would happen after we die. Now, um, notice this chapter. It's probably, it, it, again, with 1 Corinthians 15 and Luke 16 or two chapters and beginning with verse 19. You know, it, it, just a little background here. Jesus tells the parable of the unrighteous steward in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. There Christ had taught the, the value of you, using one's material possessions to prepare yourself for eternity. Well, in, in verse 14, he cautioned about the dangers of becoming enslaved to money, but the Pharisees, who were lo lovers of money, ridiculed the Lord for it. So Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, verses 19 through 31. And, and the design of this story was to show the vivid contrast between these two men. Between how they lived and, and how things were different between them after they died. And so this becomes one of the most powerful passages of scripture that you can read. Notice the facts. There was a rich man. He lived in an expensive house. Um, we know because it had a gate. Okay. And he was luxuriously clothed and he, he, he lived in mirth and splendor every day. But by way of stark contrast, there was Lazarus who was poor. He was a beggar. And, and the Greek word denotes the poorest of the poor. He was unceremoniously dumped. So the original language indicates daily at the wealthy man's gate, hoping only for a few crumbs that would fall from his table. Any meager comfort that, in, that Lazarus enjoyed was uh, provided by foraging street dogs who licked the diseased tumors of his frail body. 
Now, somebody says, how sick can you be? How miserable can you be? And God still love you and plan for you eternal life with him in heaven. Lazarus is a perfect example. How you live on this earth has nothing to do if you believe in Jesus and how you will spend eternity. Finally, both men died. Their state of affairs was drastically altered. And I would suggest to you that death will change our lives more than anything that ever happens in our lifetime upon this earth. And so all of a sudden, these two men, they wake up immediately in eternity. And one of them's in Abraham's bosom and the other one is a place of torments. And so what I want you to notice, if you notice beginning verse 22, it says the poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish with this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. And now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Notice he said, he didn't say, I can't remember that. Yeah, he remembered that. Lazarus remembered how his life was too. And he said, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you are not able and none may cross from there to us. And then the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. I have five brothers so that they may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I'm, I'm suggesting to you we could preach on that all night, but I preached on it long enough. But I just want you to notice the things that you find here about are you, will you be conscious after you die. Notice this. Number one is perception. The rich man could see both Abraham and Lazarus. He thus possessed perception. Perception involves an awareness of objects and consciousness. Number two, there was satisfaction. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. He was in comfort. After, you know, there, there will be a place of, there will be satisfaction after you leave this life. The things that you endure and suffer, God will take care of you. You will be immediately in comfort in the life to come. He's described as being in Abraham's bosom. And that's just an idiom for a place of honor. It, it, it implies that, that Lazarus was in a warm and respectful fellowship with Abraham. And this indicates he was conscious. Number, number three, sensation. The rich man was in torments. Indeed, his, he's suffering anguish, which, which, which affirms conscious sorrow. Let me ask you, have you ever been so thirsty in your life that one drop of water would make a difference? Was he in torment? Yes. He pleaded. He didn't ask for a bottle of water. He didn't ask for a cooler of ice. He asked for Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. What does that tell you? There was sensation. Now, on the other hand, Lazarus was comforted. There was communication. It's interesting here that, that both the rich man could both speak and he could be spoken to. And, and communication is only po possible with conscious beings. There was re recognition. Somebody says, well, I recognize. Sure. The rich man recognized Lazarus. Yeah, that's the guy that used to lay at my 
Okay, and if he'd gone on and on, yeah. And I never did a single thing for him if he were to go on speaking about it. Recognition involves consciousness. And then it's interesting, too, that even in torment, there's, com- there, there's comprehension. I mean, the rich man made two requests of Abraham. Number one, that Lazarus be permitted to dip his finger and to cool his parched tongue. No. But the second request was that that he'd be allowed to go back and warn his brothers because he never wanted to see his brothers again. And the answer to that was no. And when, when the Lord explained to him no, he didn't say another word. He knew it was final. You see, he had comprehension. He understood what was taking place. Number seven, there will be volition. The rich man's petition, uh, petition that Lazarus be allowed to enter the Hadean realm where he was or that he be permitted to return to the earth implies that La- Lazarus at least had volition or locomotive ability to accomplish that feat if God would allow it. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that he was conscious, that he could move, that he could change positions if God allowed him. But God would not allow him. There was recollection. I mean, Abraham reminded the rich man of his earthly status. Son, remember that you in your lifetime received the good things. And wherever there's memory, there's consciousness. And then finally, there's emotion. I mean, when the rich man reflected upon the spiritual condition of his earthly brothers, he evidenced concern and urged that they be warned not to enter this dreadful place where he was. People without consciousness have no concern for others. So what does that tell you? Yeah. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. And we will leave this earth, but we will not leave consciousness. Well, in John 20, verse 26 to 29... After eight days, this is after Christ's resurrection, the disciples were again inside. And Thomas, who you remember earlier said, I won't believe unless I touch him. Thomas was with them this time. And Jesus came. The doors were being shut. And he stood in their midst. And Jesus said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said this, and this is really what it boils down to tonight. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, there is a resurrection. We will be resurrected. What comfort does that give you? Well, it gave, it gave Paul this comfort. He preached about it. He taught about it. And this is what he knew in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He, he said this, the time for my departure has come. What a great word. The time for my trip has come, Paul said. What does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is therefore in store for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all those who have longed for his appearing. I just suggest to you that Paul understood. Paul understood that everything that he did in this life would have significance in eternity, that his Christian life. Listen, I'm telling you, there are times that we wonder. Aren't there times that you wonder, man, am I doing any good? 
Am I accomplishing anything? Would it be better maybe if I wasn't born? All kinds of people have thought like that. What does the Bible tell you? Yes. Yes, Jesus said the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God cares about you. He knows about you. And he appreciates what you're doing in his kingdom. Now, I'm going to give you something later on that will help you even more. But this does tell you. Somebody says, well, Jim, do we go directly to heaven? Well, if it's not heaven, it's awful like it. Okay? It's a place of comfort and peace. Now, what about the judgment, Jim? Well, that's just the end of all things. You know, they're, they're, you know, when you pass from this life into the X, time stops. You're not on this earth anymore. So for what might seem for us a thousand years, it's interesting. If time is not beyond the grave, then, it, you know, there, there's no recording of time for them. But I've got some other things that I'll deal with at a later time. But people have asked about this, and so I have several copies of this lesson. If it runs out, you let me know. Now, you can wake up because we're fixing to leave. Listen, thank you for listening. There are so many things about our faith that are so precious that so few people know. And so when you know this and you understand it, and the time for your departure comes, it's almost like you're waiting on the bus to come. And Miss Rhoda Phillips, when she passed away, I remember going to see Miss Rhoda just a day before she died. And I held her hand and I prayed with her. She said, Jim, I want you to pray for me. I want all my sins forgiven. I want to be with the Lord. I know I don't have long to go, but I want to be with the Lord. She looked forward to being able to leave this life and be with the Lord. And we can do the same thing. Thank you so much for listening tonight. If you are subject to the invitation of Jesus Christ, won't you come while we stand? While we sing together. If you've not had a chance to take the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing a verse or two of number 859. This will be a closing song. And as we sing that song, you may pass out to the doors over here to my right, and it's prepared in a room there for you. Is there any other announcement that we need to make before dismissed? Thanks for being here. Hope you have a good President's Day tomorrow, a good holiday, and also a great week.
Let's sing the first and last verse of this song. What a song of delight in a city so bright We'll be wafted neath heaven's fair dome How the ransom will raise happy songs in this praise When all of God's singers get home When all of God's singers get home Where never a sorrow will come There'll be no place like home When all of God's singers get home Having overcome sin, hallelujah, amen Will be heard in that land or the foam Every heart will be light and its face will be bright When all of God's singers get home When all of God's singers get home Where never a sorrow will come There'll be no place like home When all of God's singers get home Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the day that we've had today. Father, we just ask that as we depart from here tonight, that we will understand our skill set that you have given us. <coughs> and Father, we will go out <coughs> and use those skills. Father, we look forward to a home in heaven with you. And all these things we pray through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs>